Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. Welcome back to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, a podcast that comes out every week and usually has the story split into two halves, which is my way of saying that if you're listening to this, you should go back and listen to the first half if you haven't already, because it would just be weird to listen to only the second half. Because this is the second half. This one is the second half of a two-part episode, because we already did the first half. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. My guests this week are the esteemable Cam Collins and Steve Shell, who produced the amazing, uh, it's a documentary podcast called Old Gods of Appalachia <laughs> that tells all the true stories about all the non-fictional stuff that happens in these Appalachian mountains. How are you all doing? Oh, dandy, dandy, dandy. Upright doing and breathing. Doing good. And with us on the call, too, is Sophie Lichterman, who's playing the part of the voice of God. Are you, are you there, Sophie? It's me, Margaret. Uh, that'll be a two Hail Marys, a one Our Father. Oh, sorry. We're not doing that right now? Oh, okay. Have you been, have you been saving that, or is that a regular one you break out? No, I, I wrote this joke into a script, like, last week, and then I didn't get to use it. It didn't work out, and I was really sad because I was really proud of this joke. And so I was saving it, and I wrote it into the script again today. Anyway... Cam, Steve, let's assume that all the listeners have already listened to your podcast because they should. What's something that someone might not know about you all as people? Eh? Eh? Putting you on the spot without telling you I'm okay, going to do it? Okay, okay. Mm. Hmm. I actually don't know if I'm allowed to hum that particular <laughs> thing. Copyright. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Boop, boop, boop. Uh, something that people don't know about us that isn't like on our bios everywhere um you don't like being put on the spot oh okay go ahead sorry i am uh i am i am allergic to turkey Mm. no other birds no chicken no duck no anything like that but turkey does and does not do anything until it needs to leave my system and then it puts me into the hospital turkey turkey death bird as i call it death bird Kiwi, which is awesome because kiwi is in, I mean, almost almost nothing. Occasionally, if you get a fruit tray, it's in there. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, so kiwi, allergic to All kiwi. All right. 
Sophie, what are you allergic to? Oh, we don't have time for this. That's a long list. It's <laughs> a long list. I mean, I just I just picked one. Turkey is one of yeah. many things, but like it's probably it's it's one of the ones I would avoid because previous experience says the body doesn't need it. Subway clubs are not that important. Mm-hmm. I agree. And fuck Thanksgiving. I'm not allergic to any. Actually, I have no idea because I'm all the things I don't like or allergic to. I stopped eating when I went vegan. Uh, but you know who else isn't eating anymore? The mayor of Matewan. <laughs> uh, oh my as God, well as, Margaret Hartless. Segway of the year. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So the mayor is dead. When we last left our heroes, the mayor is dead. The chief of police is confusing anarchist podcasters 100 years later by being cool. And the town of Matewan is the center of a brewing labor struggle big enough that it gets called a war. And... The bloodbath was averted by the quick-thinking train conductors. So the state police roll into town, and they order Sid to dismiss the armed miners, which he which he does. So then Sid he uh, he turns around and starts hooking up with the mayor's wife, just immediately, just as soon as the mayor is dead, he's hooking <laughs> up with the mayor's wife. Sid fucks. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. So, and this led to rumors that he actually killed Mayor Testerman and the Felts, and that it was all a plot to steal away the widow. And I mean, who fucking knows? But his defense about this in court, because it came up in court in his his murder trial, that he had done it all to steal away the young widow or whatever. His defense sounds pretty solid. Who the fuck walks out into the middle of a street to confront 13 armed men alone with some master plan to kill the guy next to you and all 13 people? There's got to be a better way to elope with a married woman is mm-hmm. is basically mm-hmm. his argument. And I I believe him. That's hard mode. That's very much hard that's mode. True. Yeah, yeah. That's that's like you're definitely playing elopement on like, what's it called where you die? I, I hardcore my... or hardcore mode? Or... Hardcore mode. You're playing yeah. on hardcore yeah. mode. Yes, you are. Yeah, because <laughs> so, if you die in real life, you you're dead. You. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so this is what the anti-union media runs with. And 11 days after the Battle of May 1, Sid Hatfield and Jesse Testerman, they were arrested in a hotel for, quote, improper relations because you could get arrested for having sex before marriage, apparently, um, because the world is fucking weird. And Jesse, for her part, said that her husband and Sid had always been really good friends. And the mayor had said to her, if anything happens to me, marry Sid. He'll take care of you and the kid because they had a kid together. And. I don't know, since the mayor and Sid were thick as thieves and everyone knew trouble was coming, I believe it. Also, maybe all three of them were dating. Who fucking knows, you know? Yeah. You never know. I mean, communal living, communal loving. It's Yeah. It's a thing. So they beat the improper relations charge by getting married less than two weeks after Mayor Testerfield's death. (laughs) And after Maywan, miners come in droves to join the union. Everyone is fucking stoked about what has just happened. Again, minus the people who hate them and want them to die. And the shanty towns grow. On July 1st, 1920, they strike and they shut down the mines. And gun battles break out all across the county between operators and scabs on one side and striking miners on the other. It was not always pretty. National Guardsmen and the state police come back to town and that doesn't quell the guerrilla struggle. Shit starts getting blown up. People start getting shot. Sid and 22 others are indicted for the murder of the Baldwin Feltz men, and they become instant celebrities. The community comes together and pays their bond immediately. And then, uh, speaking of the organized crime relationship to the union, uh, the people who are going to testify against Sid and all the other defendants just start getting the 
fuck out of town because they all get letters saying, get the fuck out of town. We're going to kill you. One of them, the hotel owner, didn't get out of town. He got killed. More federal troops pour in to try and keep the peace. Military battles break out with hundreds on each side in the mountains. When I first heard about the Battle of Blair Mountain, I'm not even at the Battle of Blair Mountain. This is all the warm-up stuff. I was always like, oh, yeah, it's like probably some people got into a, a gun battle. Imagine that over labor rights or whatever, you know, like there may have been like 13 people on each side. Like, no, this is like in the, the buildup. We're talking about hundreds on each side in these military formations in the mountains. But between federal troops and a really well-placed Baldwin felt spy, like the guy who rented out the union headquarters above his restaurant was a snitch who had been in the union for 10 years and had like one was high up in the union and all of these different things. And and he was just entirely working for the Baldwin Feltz the entire time. Good on the Baldwin Feltz, I got to admit, tactically, that was a sound move. Between this very well-placed snitch and the federal troops, things quiet down for a little while. So the troops leave. So as soon as the troops leave, things stop quieting down. The battles resume. Like So much of the history, if you read about this stuff, is just like, and then they fought for weeks, and then they stopped for dinner, and then they fought for weeks, <laughs> and then they did this other thing, and then they're back to fighting. And uh, I don't run a like military history podcast, so I'm not going to get into all of the, the back and forth. But the, the union miners start winning, and a lot of the non-union miners who had come in transported on train to, to break the strike, they start leaving again on the same trains. So federal troops come in, and they declare martial law. And miners start filling up the jails, not by choice. They're getting arrested. And in one of the cooler turns of the whole thing, sex workers start robbing the federal troops, which rules. Nice. But then the feds decide that they want to crack down on sex work and moonshiner, which doesn't rule. That's like the opposite of the rule thing. And so they tried to bring a real law and order vibe to this town that was way more excited about a shoot scabs, drink whiskey and have a safe work environment vibe. And so there's just kind of clashing vibes. You could really argue that the whole thing is just a, a matter of clashing vibes. Winter comes during this deadlock. Striking miners are living in tents in the mountain cold. And then once again, in one of these fucking moments that you read in history books and you're like, okay, maybe, sure. And I'm the fiction writer. They had this bizarre touching Christmas where everyone from all sides together, they got a big old Christmas tree out in the public and they... They all sang songs, the soldiers and the union miners and the non-union miners. And it was like fucking Whoville or whatever. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Y'all think it happened? I mean, the, the history books say this happened. It's weird. They're, they're, Appalachian history gets so weird around this stuff because it is it can be a case of history is written by the winners, mm -hmm. uh, but not always. But there is always there is a. For all the Mother Jones motherfucking out there, there is this desire in Appalachia to be wholesome and yeah. for there to be like some implement. The fact that you want to flash back to the last episode, we talked about my Mother Jones, that she doesn't care for Christian language. Mm -hmm. The idea that Christianity and Christmas could bring peace, at least for one night. That's that's straight up Jesus Ganda kind of like that's straight <laughs> yeah. up like yeah, Christian, yeah. Christian propaganda. It but it, who knows? Because. Appalachian people, we do have a tendency to be genetically wholesome. Sometimes, like we can't—it's <laughs> in our DNA. It's like you, motherfucker. I hate you. I'm gonna—we we have to throw down. But first, would you like some pie? 
You know, like that's just like, you know, can I loan, can I lend you my weed whacker? And then I have another reason to fight you. You know, like that. It's just, I don't know. It's possible. No, no. See, that actually scares me because one of the reasons like people are like, people ask me all the time. They're like, oh, one, they're like, why the fuck did you move here? Because no one moves to West Virginia. People leave West Virginia. I wasn't going to say anything. Yeah, no. But I I really like it here. And people are like, why do you like it here? I'm like, well, everyone's really nice. And it doesn't feel like fake nice, like further in the South Mm. where people are like, we like Mm. you as they're like staring daggers at your eyes. It feels really wholesome and, and real here. But maybe it's just like one extra layer of like, they will absolutely let me borrow the weed whacker while they're like planning to kill me for being whatever. Anyway, who knows? But who doesn't like killing their neighbors? This isn't an ad transition. The the jurors at Sid's trial, because Sid and 22 co-defendants have the biggest trial in West Virginia history. And it it takes forever to find jurors. They go through like a thousand potential jurors and they can't find anyone who's not related to one of the defendants and like within like a hundred mile <laughs> radius and like because Appalachia <laughs> yeah a lot of and people that's... are named Hatfield in this story and I kind of cut out most of the Hatfields um, <laughs> so they have this really long trial and eventually they're found not guilty it was it was self-defense and you know basically they're like well it was actually wrong for a private detective agency to act like it was the law of the land and Probably they shot first. So Sid and Jesse, Jesse's dead mare husband's jewelry store, they converted into a gun store, which is something I hadn't heard in any of the versions of the history when I first heard it. So they they take the store and they turn it into a gun store so they can arm all the workers. And Sid tries to live his life as best as he can, but he declares that he's a marked man and they're going to get him sooner or later. And so he just spends the rest of the time being the weirdest chief of police ever born and selling guns to workers in the middle of this pitched battle, which is actually, I mean, I guess if you're trying to get money, it's not a bad time. I mean, is that up. really, that's a, that's, I don't know, is that, is that noble and awesome or is that capitalistic opportunity? Like, I got guns. I hear y'all like killing people. Yeah, that's so. true. <laughs> yeah. Two guns, Sid. <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, we'll find out if he's a sponsor of the show or not. Um, so by May, the war between the strikers and the scabs reached this fevered pitch. And there's this thing where for three days, miners hole up in the mountains and they're just, everyone's just shooting at each other with machine guns and shit for three whole fucking days. They've been doing it like a little bit here and there with flare-ups. It completely wrecks regular daily life. The schools are closed. The town is deserted. Passenger trains, when they come through, just like roar through and don't stop. And all the passengers hide on the fucking floor. And non-union miners are giving up and leaving. And, you know, at this sort of terrible cost, the unions are starting to win. Sid Hatfield, uh, he hospitalizes the superintendent of a coal company by pistol whipping him. And finally, a, a truce is called. Martial law comes back. Now it's enforced partly by an, an armed middle class that only enforces law against union miners. And I guess to be fair, the previous chief of police only enforced the law against the non-union miners and the other people. But They go around, they start confiscating people's legal firearms, they throw tons of people in jail without bond or hearings, Uh, they send a whole bunch off to distant counties as the jails fill, and the miners start hiding all the guns in the hills and straw bales. Like one story is they take the, I think it's the Sears Roebuck catalog, and they cut out a gun-shaped spot in it, you know, hide the gun in there. They're hiding guns everywhere they can. Miners are dynamiting and burning coal company offices. They're looting company stores. Kentucky militia, West Virginia State Police, they're getting into gunfights in the woods with union miners. Miners are taking pot shots at all the soldiers enforcing the martial law. And 
dozens of people arrested. In at least one case, they use submachine guns and machine gun into the tents where all the workers and their families are fucking living and sleeping. The union office, I'm just like going through it all because again, not even at the climax of any of this stuff. The UMWA offices get shut down and everyone in them is arrested because operating a union violates martial law. And the coal companies, they want fucking Sid Hatfield gone. So they come up with a way to indict him in another county because there's no way he's going to get convicted in his own county. They indict him for a raid on a non-union minor camp. And it's a trap. And everyone knows it. But Sid, his wife, Jesse, his best friend, Ed, Ed's wife, Sally, and some deputies and friends come for protection. They all board the train. They head off to a town called Welch for a trial. Mm-hmm. They walk up the steps of the courthouse. Sid is unarmed because he's about to go stand trial. Six Baldwin Feltz thugs. One of them is the snitch who I was talking about earlier, who, had the, who like ran the restaurant or whatever. They're all waiting. As soon as he reaches the top of the steps, broad daylight in front of the courthouse where he's supposed to stand trial, they just kill him. They just gun him down. They kill him. They kill his friend Ed in front of their families, friends, supporters, all of that. Uh, only Ed and, and Sid die, I believe. And later, the their assassins are acquitted. Of course they are. Yeah. 2,000 people march in the rain for their funeral procession. Newspapers across the country decry the murder. This is like, it's finally starting to kind of reach outside of West Virginia. But the union knew what the murder meant. And it meant fucking war is what it fucking meant. So we're going to leave Mingo County for a bit. But we're not leaving in a state of peace. All this shit continues. State troopers are fighting miners in the hills. The jails are overflowing. But we're going to take the story over to Logan County, which is sandwiched between Mingo County, where the miners are at war, and Kanawha County, where the miners are unionized and pissed. So now we're entering our our third county of our story of three counties, which is not a very good name for the episode and won't be the name for the episode, despite Sophie trying to convince me to name it the tale of three counties. Uh, It's really fun to blame someone for something that they didn't do. I'm used to it. Okay. Yeah. Sophie. It was Sophie's idea. In Logan County, people are living in the fucking personal fiefdom of Sheriff Don Chafin. And he's paid by the coal companies 10 cents for every ton of coal that comes out of the mines. And they pay the salary of 40 of his deputies. So the coal company owns the law in this county. And I feel like that's like a context worth understanding someone like Sid Hatfield, who is the law and ardently pro-union and pro-miner and anti-coal company, is that doesn't come from nowhere. It's coming from, well, one, people getting machine gunned in their tents, and two, the next county over, the law is literally the opposite. So one of Don Chafin's friends is a coal operator named George Swain. And 50 years later in in this oral history, he, he brags about how corrupt the whole thing is, and he's just completely unashamed. He talks about how the mines in that area were started by a prospector who didn't have the money to start it. So he stole his school teacher's sister's life savings of $6,000 by forging a check as if he was her. And then they talk about how the coal companies bypass all the federal pricing regulations through various bullshit, like they sell to each other and do all this economic shit I do not fucking understand. And the same guy brags about how his buddy Don Chafin intimidates organizers, kidnaps organizers, mock executes organizers, just completely bald about it. To hear some of their tricks straight from the horse's mouth, in case people think it's just my bias, which I absolutely have a bias. Here's George Swain. I'd listen around at my mine and see if any of my boys were talking about striking or anything like that. We'd record it if they did, and the mine owner would fire them right quick. 
We never said that was the reason, though. We always said it was that they had missed a day or that their work wasn't a very good quality or something like that. And that's happening today, right? Like, I try not to go heavy-handed on the comparisons today, but that is absolutely what all of the modern strikebreakers are doing, is that they fire all of the workers for union organizing. But it's illegal in the United States to fire someone for union organizing, so they just come up with these excuses. I guess I've never been fired for union organizing. One time, I'm pretty sure my boss heard me talk about union organizing and stopped putting me on the schedule. And that was really annoying because I needed that money to, okay, I guess that's kind of like getting fired for union organizing. It is. It really is. It's kind of just like that, actually. That's a thing that happened. And that probably happened in the the city we used to share. Yeah, yeah. No, it definitely happened in the city we used to share. Absolutely. Uh, By the way, that's the name of our collaboration album. Yeah. The city, the city we used, we used to, to share. share. <laughs> it'll be it'll be like Doomy Electronica with mm-hmm. some Midwest emo mixed in. That'll be yeah, and and it's going to sell a lot. It's yeah, happen. yeah. This is actually all a long form uh, ad for yeah our, for our new collaboration. Album. Yeah. So, not only did Don Chaffin decide who was allowed to come into Logan County, like as soon as union organizers or anyone he didn't like would show up, he'd his his thugs would turn them away and put them right back on the train and send them out. He also decided who could leave. His thugs guarded the rail stations, and I've read multiple accounts of families who had to flee on foot over the mountains because they were denied free travel by him. And they would leave because right over the mountains was Union territory. And this is why Don didn't want any of his fucking workers to leave, is because if they crossed into Union territory, they would suddenly get something approximating a living wage where they wouldn't get murdered constantly. So a literal living wage. Yeah, totally. Meaning a wage for which you don't get murdered. <laughs> yeah, Totally. <laughs> And and so people are disappearing in Logan County, and no one's really doubting where they're going because they're getting killed. And Chafin's guys would would they would line up with machine guns outside pro union households and just like hang out with machine guns and be like, "Hey, what's up?" Um, which is not a very polite way of interacting with people. And they would like pistol whip miners, not even for talking union, just literally in show of force. I don't know, wasn't a good time. And the whole thing kind of has this like medieval vibe when Mother Jones shows up. I actually almost feel bad like talking. I actually kind of like the medieval period in a way. There's a lot of workers' freedom in various parts of medieval Europe that you would not find here. But people are like, oh, this is like bad even by 19th century standards. Like this is some Dark Ages shit. Again, not the Dark Ages are actually better than, okay, whatever. So that's the context that brings us to the climactic event of this whole story, the Battle of Blair Mountain. Some unions have won at great cost through enormous effort. Some places, no one dares whisper the word union upon pain of death. And Sid Hatfield has just been extrajudicially murdered. The law isn't on people's sides, and it looks like it's never going to be. Then, in 1921, in Union, Kanawha County, the contract is up for renewal, and the coal operators of the union mines are like, look, we're losing money because non-union mines of the South are undercutting us so badly. We can't give you a good contract unless those places go union too. So the miners, they think to themselves, well, we got three reasons to march down to Mingo County to try and end this martial law. First is raw solidarity. There's folks in a shooting war with the coal operators and they're under martial law and they're filling up the jails. They need our help, right? And the second, it's everyone has to be in a union or this whole thing falls apart. We lose everything. And Finally, they're just off to avenge Sid Hatfield and a guy named Alex Breedlove. Because on June 14th, 1921, a black miner named Alex Breedlove had been killed in a raid on a tent camp. And uh, after he'd been killed, the thugs tied his body to the back of their car and dragged it off 
at his funeral, the line of mourners was three quarters of a mile long. And Breedlove's name was on people's lips alongside Hatfield's when they were like, we're going to fucking stop this. So they, they're like, fuck it. We're, we're off to war. And I, hear me out. I want to get y'all's opinion about this. I, I, I combed through history and I came up with the closest historic parallel, which is the ride of the Rohirrim when Rohan goes off to help Gondor against the assembled forces of Mordor from that documentary series, Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm aware. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I did a minor in that in community college in Appalachia. So ah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. As part of Appalachian history, it's the ride yeah, of the no, Rohirrim. They're yeah. mountain folk. There are horses. And we have some horses here. Yeah. I thoroughly appreciate that reference. Thank okay, you good. so very much. <laughs> good. I was yesterday, I was uh, I was talking with my friends who I played D&D with, and they were all talking about like the original names of all the hobbits because oh, right. um, because he didn't, Gandalf, no, Gandalf didn't write the story. Um, Tolkien, he like, whatever. Anyway, like Bilbo isn't actually Bilbo's name. It's like a translation from the... Mm-hmm. The other right, you're, you're supposed to be reading it. You're supposed to be reading it like from the viewpoint of a contemporary scholar, yeah, who is telling you the history of this, yeah, you know, yeah. Like Sam's name is like Pam or something like that, or like Tam or something like yeah. It's, it's slight yeah. variations, and then there's, there's yeah, yeah. And so I'm calling my friends nerds for caring about this, and then I go back to writing my script where I'm comparing the Battle of Blair Mountain to the Ride of the Rohirrim, one of my favorite mm. events mm. in history. Nice. But except in this case, in order to reach Mingo, they got to go through Logan, which is to say, if they want to reach Gondor, they have to go through Mordor. Mm-hmm. Nerd. I know. I My friends it. are nerds. I hate it. They're just terrible oh, nerds. I love Unlike it. me, I'm cool, uh, which is somehow the opposite of nerd. No, I can't even pretend like cool is the opposite <laughs> of nerd. That wouldn't make any now, sense. If the words, if the words, <laughs> the people I play D and D with apply to your life. <laughs> <laughs> then you, it's there. You are a nerd of one. Yeah, you know, yeah. This this from a person who's you know our our our, our podcast production company is Deep Nerd Media, and yeah. a deep nerd. If you dress up for a midnight premiere, if you're like me and are willing to reenact the Middle Ages through this, the wall of pictures you can see behind me in the Zoom, those, that's me and my friends in costumes <laughs> at a big ceremony weekend for me. The mm-hmm. for the nine million years I put into medieval reenactment, then you are a deep nerd. Yeah, you are one word. Deep nerd, deep nerd, and and yeah. that's where you are. If you own garb or cosplay of any sort, mm-hmm. deep nerd. Deep nerd. I only own two chainmail shirts that I made. Only two. Only two. Uh, deep nerd. But that you made. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I had to make the second one because I put on some weight. <laughs> How many do you own that you didn't make? I actually only own two total because I'm I'm obsessively DIY. It bothers me that I own medieval <laughs> weapons that I did not hand forge. Anyway. I'm totally cool and not a nerd. And so back to the cool <laughs> history. <laughs> okay. So. But first, it's that time again. Uh, time to advertise things. Mm-hmm. We ask guests often this. Is there a good thing you would like to sponsor a podcast, such as the concept of potatoes or, or tap water? Yeah. If you all have any ideas, anything we should get sponsored by. I think you should be sponsored by uh, the Riders of Rohan. I think I think horses <laughs> should sponsor. Should the sponsor, Riders uh, of Rohan would be the coolest sponsor ever. That'd be so. <laughs> I mean, dope. I think you should. I think you should get sponsored by George the Cat. George is legit. George is very pro labor. Very pro okay. labor. Okay. Well, that's. I think uh, that's a very appropriate sponsor. So that's who we're sponsored by, and anything else that slips in is uh, not officially 
I literally don't know what the rules are around what I can and can't say about our ads. Here's some ads. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal History. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. And we are back. And both sides are gearing up with their chainmail and their swords blowing on their war horns. By that, I mean overalls and rifles. And I don't know, they might have war horns. I wouldn't put it past them. Uh, hunting horns. Okay, so so union miners in Kanawa, they, they vote in their locals pretty unanimously to go join the march. And to not sugarcoat it, they also browbeat everyone who doesn't want to come into coming. And like one group of 20 miners, they call themselves the Coal River Hellcats. They announce that anyone who doesn't show up better not be there when the miners come home. Somewhere between peer pressure and conscription, basically, is what the Miners' March kind of comes up with. And a few people who oppose the march outright end up dead. It's hard to know exactly because their deaths tend not to be investigated. And then history, like the first book that was written about the Battle of Blair Mountain was written a couple years later by someone who was very, very actively anti-union. And even a lot of like the one of the neutral history books that I read the one that talked about this conscription was written by someone whose father had fought on the anti-union side during this fight. And that does not necessarily mean that this person is not a neutral party, right? But it becomes very hard to, to know who to trust. But most historians say that it was about 10,000 men, as well as uncounted women and children who were there to support them. They gather at a place called Lens Creek at the start of the march. No one's really counting some historians, I think I think historians settle on 10,000. I'm very critical of historians throughout all of this. It's just, it's hard to know who to trust. You can trust me. I only speak the truth. Okay. Well, so, I mean, I mean just, just to be clear, though, I mean, mm-hmm. Appalachia is a, is, a, is a region and a people that history has spoken for for generations because we're just yeah. dumb hillbillies who, you know, don't matter. You don't, they can't read the history book. No way. Go ahead and write whatever you want, you know, like, and so I, just, I, just, I, I think you're absolutely right to be distrustful of historians writing about stuff like we were like a mysterious subcontinent to the to the the bulk of the country for 
generations. So like any actual like like even reading mm-hmm. Dark and Bloody Ground, the oral history is just you, you're dealing with people who are telling it, you know, holy shit, there was, you yeah. know, and that's going to be as subjective, you know, as you know, as it's going to be. So you're absolutely right to be skeptical. And I want to encourage that skepticism, nurture it, feed it, send it a birthday card. Yeah. And bring it strange things that I find in the woods. Mm. Somewhere between 5,000 and 13,000 miners. That's the the range that most historians are presenting. And I'm going to stick with the 10,000 because it's a nice round number, of which at least 2,000 of them are black. And supporters start coming in from as far away as Ohio and Illinois. Folks actually came up from Mingo County as well, but most of them weren't able to get through safely from Logan. And this part is important. You all might have opinions about. They're the redneck army. Literally, that's what they call themselves, and that's what their enemies call them. The term redneck is is older than that, and as far as I can tell, it comes from the 19th century and does come from where most people say it comes from about the white folks in the South working outside, getting sunburned in the back of their neck. But it's at the Cold Wars that it finds this new meaning, and I think where it might become popularized. And I'm curious if you all have, not to accuse you of having opinions about the word redneck, but... Uh, it's it's just one of those things. It hit. I mean, I'll be straight mm-hmm. honest with you. Growing up, like as kind of a punk kid, and or even a, a weirdo kid before I was a punk kid in Appalachia, redneck was always an insult. Yeah, and it oh, always implied yeah. Yahoo country, pickup truck driving, country music listening, gun toting, probably racist. Like you know, like that. That word was definitely fucking rednecks. Like yeah, it was just yeah. like yeah. it was just one of those. It wasn't a class thing because like rich kids were rednecks too. But it's just a matter of. It was just it was something that was embraced by aggressively country conservative pickup truck driving, you know, beat you up for for being queer. You know, like, yeah, that's what that's what rednecks meant to us growing up. Like it wasn't until much later that I learned about, you know, that originally much like a lot of Appalachia originally was once very progressive and championing change and causes. And now in some places have just inverted itself into something else entirely. I mean, yeah, basically the same thing. It was it was never, you know, never what you wanted to be when we were growing up, for sure. Yeah, it makes sense. And it, it, it depresses me how often these things kind of come to mean their opposites, right? Like, because in 1921 in southern West Virginia, it means that you are a union miner, either white or black, and you're not afraid to fight. And they all wore red bandanas around their necks as their uniform in the redneck army. And I'm not trying to like specifically be like, everyone go run out and reclaim this word, right? Like words <laughs> are real complicated, but but it's it's just annoying. It's like those assholes shouldn't be able to have it, you know? Anyway, so they show up with whatever clothes they have. Some of them have World War I uniforms and helmets because they're vets. Some of them, most of them wore those red bandanas and a lot of them wore blue overalls. And the blue overalls eventually became even also part of the uniform. And they had revolvers and they had rifles and they had shotguns. And then they started having machine guns once they started robbing stores to steal all the machine guns, which is a decent way to get machine guns if you suddenly need a lot of machine guns. I actually, it's it's so, I don't think there's a store around here I could, I could rob to get machine guns. <laughs> but I don't know. Times change, I guess. And so, and they show up every fucking which way and they're pouring out of the hollers. Some of them are riding in cars. Some of them are riding passenger trains. Some are clinging to the roof of passenger trains. Some walk 300 miners have train tickets and there's no room for them on the passenger train. So they go and commandeer a freight train at gunpoint and then they politely give their tickets to the yardmaster. Some of them carjacked wagons. No one is in charge. They're all in these individual groups and they're driven by the task at hand and their anger at being beaten, fired, machine gunned, and generally mistreated. 
A sheriff shows up and orders them to disband. You will be shocked to know that this is not an effective tactic, and they choose not to listen to that man. They are not an orderly crowd. They robbed farms for vegetables and chickens. They robbed a deputy for his money. They robbed company stores for arms and ammunition. Oh, God, that's why they have fucking machine guns at the stores. I didn't even put that together. They had fucking machine guns at the stores because that's where the fucking thugs would go buy their goddamn machine guns. One time I was in, this is completely off script. One time I was in West Virginia or hanging out with people who were working to stop mountaintop removal. And I went to go see this graveyard of workers who had died in the coal wars. And you actually had to trespass on the company land to see it. And which of course I didn't did, but somehow I ended up there without trespassing. And there was a, a bunker, a stone bunker on top of this hill in the graveyard. And it's there for them to machine gun miners with. Like these fucking bunkers existed to like watch over the miners and shoot them if they got out of line. That kind of hit me when that happened. Yeah. So a lot of these miners, they buy their guns, the ones that they buy, they buy from a union-friendly merchant. And some folks later say that the union coal operators actually loaned them the money to go buy, like would give them advances on their paychecks and all this stuff to go buy uh, machine guns, which actually makes sense because the coal companies are in almost as much trouble from the non-union miners as the miners themselves were. And to get also to the progressive history of this, they, they knew where they stood in history and they tied the struggle into the other great thing that happens in West Virginia, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. They sing a version of the song that was on the lips of the Union Army when it invaded and freed the South two generations prior. John Brown's Body was a song that I would not sing for you all on air. I'm terribly sorry. And John Brown's Body is what the Union, the original Union, when they invaded the Confederacy to, to stop the Confederacy, they sang the song. And the, the Union coal miners sang, we'll hang Don Chafin to a sour apple tree to the same song as they... They went on their march. So Mother Jones shows up and she tells them to disband. And this is not my favorite thing that Mother Jones has ever done. She shows up and she says, I have a telegram from the president of the United States of America that says, if you go home now, he will address all your grievances. The crowd asks to see the telegram. She refuses because she was lying about it. The crowd figures out that she's lying about it. So some of the union heads, they head back to Charleston to confirm that the president never sent a telegram like that. Uh, she's found out to be a liar, and the crowd stops listening to Mother Jones after that. And it kind of starts this whole thing that happens where basically like the leaders start being like, oh, we don't have control over what's happening. Like no one has control over what's happening. This is uh, The Battle of Blair Mountain becomes a, a force of its own. In Logan County, the forces of Sauron, I mean, sorry, the Sheriff of Nottingham, nope, the Sheriff of Logan County, <laughs> the forces are there getting ready to. First and foremost, Don Chafin has conscripted everybody that he can. I know I compared what happened to the union miners as conscription, but Don Chafin actually did conscription and it was systematic and it wasn't through like peer pressure or whatever. It was fight for him or you lose your job. At best, miners were threatened at gunpoint. Pro-union miners or anyone who just wanted to stay the fuck out of it all had to go into hiding. Some people, and I would say that these are the cleverest of them all, took the free guns that he was offering and then went into hiding, which seems like the better plan. That seems like the better plan there. Yeah. And because he controlled who came and who went, he actually stopped people from leaving. And so one family actually had to pull guns on guards in order to fight their way onto a train to leave rather than be conscripted to go fight against the Union Army. 
And the governor of Kentucky sent them all machine guns because there's so many machine guns in this story. There's a, such a low body count for the number of machine guns in this story. It's kind of, spoiler alert, not that many people die. I mean, if I'm one of the people who died, I'd be like, I wouldn't care that it's a low number because a number that includes me is a significant number. It, for me, that goes to another thing about uh, going back to the reliability of Appalachian history sometimes of how many bodies do we not know about? Yeah. How many yeah. how many how many ambushed people trying to leave were just chucked into a creek by a holler and left to you know left left for the animals to eat and decay and you know whatever. How many massacres were there that don't have a state roadside marker? Yeah. You know, I, th I think yeah. I think the I think the Cold War has had a lot higher body count because I think the messaging overall has been controlled by the industry and by the government. I think there are a lot of family lines that ended uh, in the 1920s and 19, in the early 1900s through the 1920s, leading up to like Bloody Harlan, for example. Um, I thought, yeah, I just, I just, w if a future generation before I leave this planet fi starts finding mass graves in Appalachia around coal mining sites, I will not be, I will not be shocked. No, that makes sense. I mean, I remember when I was, the first time I was driving through the coal fields and I was like, oh, I'm going to go to all these ghost towns because there's like all these ghost towns around. And you go and they're, they're not there because what happens is as, as miners, this is later, but as as the industry is automated and mountaintop removal and, and strip mining, all these things like lay off all the workers and people are replaced with dynamite basically. And the coal companies just go through and buy up the towns and demolish everything and leave no yep. record, no history. These places are just gone. And the idea that coal companies is kind of a tangent or soapbox or something, but the idea that coal companies represent the legacy of Appalachia is a complete and utter lie. These are the companies that are absolutely actively working to erase the history and the people who made them rich in the first place. Sorry, I just said mm -hmm. where I grew up in Southwestern Virginia, where Cam and I grew up, uh, specifically my mom's family uh, living up on a place called Thacker's Branch uh, up off of... Uh, off of Norton, Virginia, near places like Dorchester and Imboden and Blackwoods, where if you even went back to like the 60s, like there's a Facebook group called Coal Camps of Wise County. Mm -hmm. Dorchester, in my mind, is a trailer park and a couple of wide spots in the road. Mm -hmm. If you go back on that Facebook group and look for pictures of Dorchester, it looks bigger than downtown Wise, Virginia. It looks bigger than downtown Norton. There are three and four story brick and mortar buildings. There is a movie theater. There is a playhouse. There is this entire place bigger that looks bigger than the town we grew up in downtown. Yeah. And it in a matter of 20 or 25 years is just gone. And it is one of many. There are places my mom talks about like Imboden, Osaka, uh, Stonega, Derby, Places that she could have gone as a young teenage girl or, you know, and my mom's not, my mom's only 19 years older than me, mm -hmm. uh, you know, places that were places they could go to do things or see things. And within, by the time the 80s roll around. They're just gone. Yeah. It just, it, it blows. That's one of the things we, I'm not to talk about our show, but we, I'm actually mm -hmm. writing a thing right now about a fictitious West Virginia town. That's an analog for another town that I won't name. That we've named it Tourniquet, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's about a place where the coal went bad. The company pulled out and ceded the land back to the county. And then 20 years later, the county decided to show up and tear it down. Yeah. And that's that happens usually a lot quicker. But there are places that during coal booms were bustling places like St. Paul, Virginia mm -hmm. is like a town so small that their high school couldn't feel their, their high school had to consolidate with Coburn High School to be able to field a marching band. Okay, yeah. but at the height of the coal boom in the 60s and 70s, 
there was going to be a Minneapolis, Virginia, built on the other side of the river of St. Paul, and they were expected <laughs> to be thriving metropolitan areas by the 1980s. Yeah. You know, and they're both like tiny, tiny towns with minimal tourism dollars now and maybe like a brewery and a winery. Yeah. And and burned out coal mines. Like, you're absolutely, Mark, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a fucking tragedy that the companies that exploit and just have destroyed the bloodlines of where we're from gets to write the history and literally gets to wipe people off the map where they just don't fucking exist anymore. Yeah. Fuck. That just made me way irrationally angrier than I, I realized it would when I started talking. I'm so sorry. No, no. I mean, yeah, no, that <sighs> fucking makes sense. Okay, so <laughs> I feel bad just like cutting right back into it, but they know the redneck army is coming. So they march up on a bladder mountain and they start digging trenches and Plenty of people on both sides are World War I vets, so they know a thing or two about digging a trench and then getting caught in some awful fucking conflict that accomplishes nothing. Don Chevin controls all the press in his fiefdom, of course, so all of this is done in secrecy. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, it's like, I wonder how much we would even know if, like, this thing hadn't happened, if it hadn't hit this level of intensity that made people actually go look behind these fucking sheriffs who are the kings of their kingdom or whatever. So the Redneck Army, they have the numbers, and the Cold War Lord's Army have the advantage of defense, and they have planes, and they have, like, all this, you know, they have the money, right? And the planes at first are just used for reconnaissance. And during all this, the federal government is, like, hanging back to observe, and the, the West Virginia government is like, hey, fucking federal government, could you stop this? There's about to be a war. And the federal government's like, I mean, maybe? Let's figure out what's going on. Right when the march starts, the UMWA loses its nerve. They call a big meeting at a ballpark and they say, hey guys, we should probably go home before the U.S. Army shows up and makes us go home. And they call the march off. So the union is like, we can't fucking do this. This is too much. We can't go to war. And some of the rank and file, they want to keep going anyway. Shit gets really messy here. There's a lot of back and forth about do we march? Do we not march? Like some people start marching, but they don't really get anywhere. And, but by and large, folks don't want to fight the U.S. Army. And because these are fairly patriotic folks at the end of it, and a lot of them are vets. And they also just kind of weren't suicidal. The march is probably over until Don Chafin just fucking couldn't help himself. He meets up with some state troopers, and they want revenge. Not because they've been shot, but because one time they got embarrassed. Because they got surrounded by a bunch of Union miners who forcibly disarmed them. So they're mad and they want blood. So they now go and they start marching on the scattered Union folks and they arrest people as they go. They, they end up arresting about 10 people before they come upon some armed miners who just aren't fucking having it. The troopers ask, hey, why are you armed? And they answer, by God, that's our business, which I feel like is a reasonable answer to that question. Yeah. As always, no one knows who shot first. I think it was Han Solo. This time it went badly for the miners. Three miners died, including a man named William Greer, who had been evicted with his family in Matewan, and part of the wave that had started the whole chain of events, which led to where they are now. So he didn't really have a good time with this whole thing. He first gets evicted, then he joins the Union Army, and then he gets killed. The troopers run off as the miners shot. But you know who won't run away are these screaming deals on our goods and <laughs> I'm an advertiser. I'm so good at being enthusiastic about these deals. 
Here's some ads. Buy, sell, buy, sell. <laughs> Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. And we are back. Man, those Satans. <laughs> so rumors run like wildfire, and there is no more fucking truce. The march is back on. I'm going to call it the Miner's March too. This time it's personal, which is probably what they called it. And they also also probably referred to it as this. They got really Grand Theft Auto on the whole thing at this point because now they're all scattered, right? They're not in the same place. So they commandeer every car, truck, and train they can just to get back to Blair Mountain. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. Yeah, just, no, they're just fucking, it's just this pages after pages of like, and then six people went to the following guy and said, give me your truck. And then the doctor only didn't get his car commandeered because he said, I'm a doctor. And they let him go and uh, one of my favorite side notes out of it is that, like, while this march is happening now, the the black miners push their way into whites only restaurants and are like, "You're gonna fucking serve us," and they're like, "Yeah, I guess we're gonna serve you." Um, so one way to force integration is to be all in the same union and have guns. So, uh, and the UMWA tries to stop the march again, and the miners are like, "No, we're we're fucking doing this." We, we actually don't care about like the official union line. We are off to free Mingo County. And they, they're all like off to Mingo and they're all chanting off to Mingo. I don't know if that's actually what they chanted. It says what that's what they chanted, but I have a feeling they had a lot more clever chants. You know, at one point I was wondering as I was like looking through all this, I was like, I wonder whether these people are ideologically motivated. You know, what degree are they like communists or socialists or anarchists? Like a lot of the union people fighting around during this time and with my own personal bias, I'm always kind of like looking for the anarchists in history because we get written out of history a lot also because we, much like Appalachians, don't tend to win. And, But I realized when I was reading this and I was, as I was thinking this, I was like, I'm going about this entirely wrong. Like, yes, many of the miners were ideologically motivated and I have you know find notes about them talking shit on capitalism itself. But the march was not about an ideology. They were a self-organized, leaderless, multiracial force that went off to end martial law and free folks that they had never met from a jail. 
So I don't care what they called themselves. They fucking ruled. They're fucking ruled. <laughs> it's yeah. awesome. And it's, and it's just and, and, and so much of it comes back to to the I mean, to a traditional Appalachian value mm-hmm. of I, I have the right to provide for my family. Yeah. And it's not necessarily like capitalistic gain. I have a right to amass wealth and do whatever, but I have a right to fucking feed my family. And if the game in town is fucking mining, then that's what we're going to do. And we're going to do it in a way where we can survive doing it. And if not, fuck you and your machine guns. You know, it's just like um, because there's a lot of union stuff nowadays. It comes down to the allegiances to their paycheck. Mm -hmm. As long as my kids get paid for when I'm gone and the money is there, you know, fuck you, fuck your politics, fuck your socialism, fuck. You know, go to there's all kinds of unfortunate incidents involving racism and yeah, you and and stuff in West, sadly West Virginia right now. Yeah, uh, but it, but but that allegiance is to I have a right to provide for my family, and I think that's a that's something that is rooted in the survival instincts of the people that ended up here after we stole Appalachia in the first place. Yeah, but the people who ended up here in this land that was so hostile to try to fucking tame, that was their that was what they had. Yeah. Like, I've come this far. I have a right to fucking feed my kids, you know. Totally. No, absolutely. And so they they take five prisoners of war right off because there's five deputies from Logan who are, like, wandering around lost. And by all accounts, they actually treat these prisoners really well. And I'm just going to come up a couple times. And basically, at this point, everyone's wondering, like, are we about to have a second civil war? Kind of a class war this time? Because... The anti-union forces get a wave of new recruits from the upper classes, lawyers and bankers and business owners and like from all over the state are arming up and heading off to the trenches to fight these damn rednecks. And in the end, there's about 2,800 defenders to 10,000 attackers. The first person to die in the defending army was a cop who got shot by his own side from a negligent discharge. They go up the mountain, both sides, and they start shooting at each other. By a lot of accounts, it was more of a hide-and-snipe kind of fight than a charge-with-bayonets-fixed kind of fight. Somewhere near the start of it, a union sympathizer woman who lives on the mountain, she's, like, signaling to the union that non-union folks are coming by, like, flickering her lights on and off. And so the anti-union folks break in and murder her. Just like, fuck you. And a pro-union minister who has all these quotes about, it's time to put down the Bible and pick up the rifle, named John Wilburn. He's patrolling the mountain with his son and a few others when he comes upon another patrol led by John Gore, who's an anti-union deputy. They both give their sides passwords at the time. Uh, the union side, their password is I come creepin," and the anti-union side is amen. I actually think these are both sick passwords, but I come creepin." And, and, I, yeah, think totally. yeah. I come creepin" is like awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so they both realize that they're facing the enemy. And both sides open fire. John Gore and his two buds, they go down and die. But first they shoot the first casualty of the Union side, who's a black man named Eli Kemp. And the, the war keeps going. The anti-Union side is, is losing. So they start fucking bombing the miners with planes. They fill up planes with bombs full of TNT and chemical weapons. And I believe it's the first time chemical weapons were, well, used on people in U.S. I don't know. I mean, there's... Everyone always says, this is the first time this happened in history. And then you always find other times that this shit happened in history before it. But whatever. It was not a fucking normal ass thing to start dropping chemical weapons from fucking biplanes on goddamn your employees. On American citizens as well. Yeah, totally. And what's funny about it is they don't actually manage to kill anyone this way. 
and only one person is injured seriously by a chemical weapon bomb during all of this, who is an anti-union miner who accidentally sets off a bomb, like not even on the mountain, and he's hospitalized with burns. So I kind of like how comedy of errors these fucking people are. The actual Union Army is still segregated at this time, right? And it's going to be segregated for decades to come. The Redneck Army might be the first army the U.S. ever produced that wasn't segregated. Again, I'm doing the like, the first time ever or whatever, right? Like, I don't fucking know. But it's the first one I've run across. And black men led white troops. A man named Red Thompson led 75 soldiers in an attack. Yet in all this fighting, and actually, to your point, I'm not actually certain about this line that I I wrote from what I've read, casualties were fairly rare. A lot of folks weren't even fucking aiming. And they shot an awful lot, but kind of usually just sort of like uphill in general. And especially on the anti-union side, because a lot of the anti-union side did not want to be there. A lot of the non-union miners went up the mountain because they were conscripted and told to, and then they just found a really good place to hide out, and then they just hung out for nine days and just like fucking laid down and like waited for the whole thing to be over. The Redneck Army had no general. They just had a lot of leaders. Several of them were black. A doctor named W.F. Harless, who made daily trips up to the mountain, passed machine gun fire to treat wounded miners. He talked about leadership, and, and what he said was, Now, a lot of people will tell you Bill Blizzard was the leader of it all. Now, Bill's one of the finest people that's ever lived, don't get me wrong. And even though Bill and I have disagreed on a lot of things, I'd vote for him again if he was still living. And I was in the hospital the day he died. But he wasn't the leader any more than the rest of us was from the way I see it. We was all just leaders in a manner of speaking. I love that because it was still really organized. Everyone was fed. Everyone was taken care of. Ammunition showed up on time. Like, A million rounds got fired in this fucking nine-day battle. And for secrecy's sake, for there's reporters around, and what they're doing is hella illegal. You're not actually supposed to have wars uh, in general. If you're not a government, governments are allowed to have wars. Then it's encouraged. So they, they avoided using names. They used numbers instead, and they mostly just called everyone buddy, which I think also rules. Also, can we, can we take a moment to appreciate Bill Blizzard? Oh, as a name or a person? Because either way. Mm-hmm. As a name, yeah. just as a name, true, true rule, yeah. true fucking rule. Yeah, but like you've got Sam, you've got Sid McCoy and Bill Blizzard. Yeah, I mean that's 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 a that's a new first person shooter game right there. I mean that's just like I mean it's just and also dope figures in history. Yes, yeah, yeah. but like yeah, but two gun Sid and Bill Blizzard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. There's there's so many things I, I keep. It happens to me over and over again as I work in this podcast where I'm like, if I wrote this in a fiction, people would make fun of me because it's too mm. on the nose. But Bill mm. Blizzard rules. Um, and he gets called the general a lot in a lot of these stories. And he ends up, I think he ends up in the UMWA uh, leadership. And he was involved in some of the earlier strikes in, in 1912, 1913. But yeah, he, he was like one was of he many killed? leaders. What's that? Was he killed or did he die? I don't remember. I think he lived. I think he survives all of this. I think you're right. I may look that up real quick. Okay, great. So not only this leaderless fucking battle against the rich people is winning. I mean, okay, they have like four times as many people, but they break through the enemy lines in some spots. Waves of reinforcements are coming from all over. Basically, the the armies of the rich are never going to have as many people as the armies of the poor if whenever the poor figure out that they shouldn't be divided along race lines. And... We don't know how many Wobblies showed up. Wobblies are members of the IWW, which is a more radical union that's trying to end capitalism itself. 
But we do know about one Wobbly who showed up. This guy named uh, Comiskey, and he's a bricklayer. And he shows up in Logan County during all of this. He's immediately arrested, taken to jail, and within 36 hours of his arrival, the jailer's adult son walks into the jail and shoots him to death. So that's the, you know, that's the justice on the law and order side. The other thing I keep running across throughout history is that no one actually cares about law and order. Like, neither side of this is like, what we care about is the law. They only use the law in order to get what they want. And one side is doing something, wants something that I want, so I agree with. And the other side is pretending to use the law, but doesn't. They're just fucking killing people um, in their own jails. In comparison, and again, weirder than fiction, the the jailer of Logan County, his brother, Bad Lewis White, is the jailer on the other side, on the come union on, side. Bad, Lu- Bad Lewis. This is Was there a Bad Lewis White. <laughs> Bad Lewis White. Okay, so to, to fulfill our Bill Blizzard uh-huh. content, so he, yeah, he was totally blizzard after the Battle of Black Mountain. Blizzard continued to fight for miners' rights. In 1933, in the wake of the New Deal, the UMWA was reorganized, reinvented. John Lewis gave Blizzard his job back, and in turn, Blizzard was back preaching across the state as a UMWA member again. Coal miners in West Virginia admired and looked up to him. He became a strong opponent of the West Virginia Miners Union, which was a, a counter union yeah, to the uh-huh. UMWA. And uh, he got in a fist fight with John Lewis's, who was head of the UMWA, <laughs> got in a fist fight with his younger brother, <laughs> and John Lewis ran him out of the UMWA. Uh, but Lewis retired to a farm and uh, died three years later on July 31st, 1958. He was 65 years old. Okay. So he even went out fucking swinging. Yeah. Against union corruption, probably. I mean, Against I, union corruption. I'd like yeah, to believe, that. yeah. That we're, that's what we're saying. We're writing history right now. So yeah, yeah. Putting that down. Yeah. And his name's Bill fucking Blizzard. Yeah. So, like, you can argue with that? Bill Blizzard was a goddamn hero. I know. So, so Bad Lewis White, our other hero, who's the jailer, unlike his brother, who's the jailer on the other side of this brother versus brother battle, <laughs> uh, the actual bad brother, the the anti-union brother, is feeding people beans with crushed up glass and murdering people in the jail. Um, whereas Bad... The fuck? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which doesn't sound like a healthy and balanced diet. That is not, no. uh, Sophie, if, if it's possible, we could in advance not allow the concept of beans filled with crushed up glass is not, it uh, should not be a sponsor of this show. Oh, good to know. Good to know. Yeah, I can't thought. put that on our blacklist for our show as well, please. Yeah. Yes, no. I, cool. I will make yeah. note of it and make sure Cal knows what's up. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right. So Bad Lewis White takes care of his prisoners. There's five of them. Uh, he does prevent the son of the um, the son of Deputy Gore, the guy who got shot earlier in the the fight. Um, he doesn't let his son go to his father's funeral because he's busy being a prisoner of war. The fight goes on for nine days, and in the end, it's the U.S. Army that breaks it up, which is sort of predictable based on how everything's going. Neither side wants to go to war with the U.S. itself. So thousands of troops come in. They split into two forces. They cut off both the Union and the anti-Union side and force them to stop fighting. Most miners kind of slink off home. 600 of them directly surrender. Out of a million rounds fired, maybe 50 to 100 Union miners died and about 10 to 30 of Chafin's men. 1,217 indictments were handed down against the marchers, including 325 murder charges and 24 counts of treason. Bill Blizzard... The, I wrote down one of the leaders, but now the audience is fully aware. So Bill Blizzard is, is tried for treason in the same West Virginia courthouse that John Brown had been. And if I ever get tried for treason, which I hope I don't, I'm kind of a 
you know, I don't really like when bad things happen to me. But if I do, I would love to be tried in the same. What an honor to be tried for treason in the same courthouse that John Brown was tried for treason in. Blizzard, in contrast to John Brown, was found innocent. He actually used an unexploded bomb as evidence that they were like, these motherfuckers are dropping bombs on us from biplanes. These people are clearly the bad guys. And the comp, you know, basically, I mean, like the company is fucking brutal. And that helped a lot in the trial. Only one guy got convicted of treason, a man named Walter Allen. And he rules for the one fact that he jumped bail, fucked off good, and was never heard from again. Mm-hmm. Which is the other nice. thing I would like, I would never do. <laughs> I would never, Jesus Christ, I would never say radio show that I, okay. So Don Chafin, however, was one of the only characters in the story. To, Fuck that guy. Yeah. He actually serves some time. He gets two years for violation of prohibition because he's like everyone else, crooked as fuck. But he retires rich and his life is fucking easy and because there is no God. The Mingo strike drags on for another year. It bankrupts the local branch of the union and eventually it fails. Even the union miners in Kanawha lose their contract and the UMWA membership plummets throughout the whole 1920s. Basically, the union lost the war even though both sides surrendered because that meant going back to the status quo and the status quo was the company's are in charge. For about 10 years, the company, the union languishes in West Virginia until a federal New Deal law in 1933 guarantees workers the right to organize the National Industrial Recovery Act. And as soon as that happens, as soon as they're like, you know, basically like the yellow dog contracts no longer apply and stuff, everyone signs up. All the places that the union had been strong, all the places that the union had been weak, Everywhere people poured in and unionized and collectively bargained their way to a better life. And one of the things that that tells me is that even the people who were like on the anti-union side who were conscripted would have been happier, wanted to be in a union by and large, not all of them, obviously, no no group is a monolith, but they just didn't feel like that was a possibility. And it it still didn't come easy. It wasn't like this law passed and then everything was like perfect because co-operators don't want to lose their profit margin. And so there's still violence on both sides. Pickets are guarded by armed miners. And I don't know, I, I guess it's like the federal law made this possible, but it was the fighting and the bravery that built up the camaraderie necessary to see it through. And as, as you've talked about throughout this, you know, the UMWA ends up the largest union in the country and within several decades, it starts becoming increasingly corrupt. And actually the the history book that you keep referencing on Dark and Bloody Ground is also where a lot of the direct quotes that I'm using are come from. And it was written in the 70s by people trying to fight the corruption within the UMWA who were trying to basically go back and be like, hey, remember when we were cool? Like, remember when we did like good <laughs> stuff, you know? At one point, at one point, there were two copies of Dark and Bloody Ground, like left in the entire state of West Virginia's library system, until this reissue that the Mind Wars Museum did. Mm-hmm. Like it was almost extinct from like from print. Yeah, and the Mind Wars Museum was instrumental in bringing it back. So that's that's kind of that's kind of sick too. Yeah, which is why archivists are fucking cool. Um, so when Logan gets the county in 1933, miners no longer have to work thigh deep in water. Their hospital gets cleaned up. It's not full of roaches and bed bugs. Workers are allowed to shop at other places other than the company store. Wages quadruple in some jobs. And I feel like it's worth reiterating how simple and basic the shit that they were fighting for was. And there's there's one more story I want to tell about just a story, interaction I had with some miners. 
I, I live in West Virginia now, but a while back I wasn't living here and I was visiting as a photojournalist taking pictures for Mountain Justice, which is a group fighting against mountaintop removal coal mining. And a lot of union miners were and are involved in that fight. And I, I don't remember who told me this story and it bothers me. And I asked my friend who was there and, and, and they don't remember it either. It was either Chuck Nelson, who's a UMWA member and a fourth generation coal miner, or it's Sid Moy, whose father and grandfather were miners, but he worked as a printer and he taught homesteading instead. And both of them have since passed away. I met Sid at a civil disobedience training where we were practicing how to navigate arrest and deal with police because uh, there's there's stuff I don't have time to get into. I kind of wish I did, or I, I wish I had the words to get into about how like being like, yay, industry. I mean, like coal mining, like, like coal's fucked up, right? Like, I'm not trying to, I don't want anyone to leave here and be like, yeah, that's why we need more coal jobs in America or whatever, right? Like, no, like, like fucking leave it in the ground, like use renewable shit. But like, that doesn't mean that the miners aren't right to fight for a decent living as they navigate this hellscape of a world we live in. And a lot of these miners are at the forefront in the fight against mountaintop removal because they care about the fucking mountains, you know? A lot of people are seeing the environmental, the the can everything from the cancer rates to groundwater yeah. contamination to everything that's come from mountaintop removal. Like the growing up, we were talk, we always talked about the strip job. Mm -hmm. Dad works on the my dad didn't work in the mines. He worked on the strip jobs where they'd cut away a section of the mountain, and he was maintenance crew. You know, he was on the thing repairing the machines that were taking the tops off the mountains. Yeah. That's that he didn't go into the mines till he was well into his 30s to fix a piece of gear. And that was the one and only time and he never, ever wanted to go back because it was terrifying. Yeah. But but a lot of people in central Appalachia, southwest Virginia, eastern Kentucky, they've seen what this process has done to the land. Yeah. They've seen what it's done to our health. They've seen what, what it's done. I mean, just there's just I can't we don't have time to get into it, but the cancer rates, especially among women. Yeah in Wise County, Virginia, are absolutely insane, especially when you trace it back to where water has drained off, where groundwater has been contaminated. And it's absolutely, yeah, it's it's absolutely insane. So yes, a lot of miners and a lot of, I want to just want to validate yeah. a, lot of, a lot of good Appalachian folk who probably wouldn't spit on me politically otherwise, yeah. or any of us politically otherwise, oh, no. will stand against that. Yeah. And, and a lot of them who at one time probably wouldn't have but in you know in the recent years they've they've finally come to to see it unfortunately yeah not 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 unfortunate they came to see it but you know <laughs> unfortunately they've had to see it had so. to see all the stuff that's happening you were saying yeah, yeah 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 at a certain point you just can't ignore it anymore yeah or you come you come to realize it cuz you're you know your partner has has cancer because of this or your parents have died 20 years beforehand because of exposure to you know, they, maybe they never worked in the mines, yeah. but there's a mine site on the other side of the mountain and your groundwater is fucked up. So the amount of it's yeah, it's 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 so much bigger than black lung is awful and horrific. But the health stuff that radiates out from from mining and has over the years, especially from mountaintop removal stuff, has just been it's it's off the charts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, when I when I was on my way to to go go to the coal fields for the first time and, and work, try it. I didn't do a ton of, I'm really not trying to like play up my own importance to this whole thing, but I went and saw it, right. To take pictures for people. And I went and someone from Wise County, you know, who had grown up there and the street he lived on was like his last name. And it was all, you know, different small houses with 
people who have his last name. And he, he takes me up and he shows me a mountaintop removal coal site. And it's just a, I, I don't know. I don't have words for it. I used to avoid thinking about mountaintop removal. I was a forest defender. I was like working in like tree sitting and shit like that and working in as if it was an industry. You know, I, I was a volunteer activist and I go sit in trees, but I, I never went to West Virginia to go confront mountaintop removal because it, it was too much problem. I couldn't wrap my hand around it. You know, you get um, disaster fatigue is facing a lot of people right now, right? And the concept that people are just blowing up mountains, things that make clear cutting look good in comparison, you know, it, it was it was too much for me. And I went up and I stood on this, what should have been a mountaintop. Instead, it was this flat, weird, Field, and it just I don't know. Anyway, it's hard. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I mean, as two people, you know, as as people who grew up there, and like I could walk to the reservoir near my dad's house, cross the road behind the reservoir, and my friends and I used to go when we were twelve, thirteen. We'd go play Lord of the Rings. wasn't that cool mm -hmm. yet? But we'd go have our own fantasy adventures because the fucking landscape looked like an alien planet. Yeah. Because everything had been stripped. Nothing was native. It was all these pine trees and shrubs that were planted to reclaim the land. And it looked like like, like some new god had reached down and carved up everything that was familiar into a different planet. Like, it's it's unreal and it's awful. And it's, no, it's, yeah, I get you. Yeah. I get mm -hmm. you. Uh, yeah, just, it's, it's hard to even. Yeah. Yeah. So... So one of the stories I heard from either Chuck Nelson or Sid Moy was how in the 60s, him and his friends were busy protesting against the draft in the Vietnam War in, in West Virginia, which already kind of like, because I came from outside and had these preconceptions about people who live in West Virginia, which I'm not fucking proud of. And I was already like surprised, right? And he was like, well, me and my friends were on one street corner protesting against the draft. And we look across in the other street corner, black folks are protesting for civil rights. And on a third corner, gay folks are protesting for their rights. And we all looked at each other and we realized we'd be way better off protesting together. So all three groups got together and we were an awful lot stronger that way. I know it's like oversimplified and probably not a literal direct thing, but might have been a literal direct thing that happened to this guy. And I just, I've been thinking about it in the like 10, 15 years since then, like all the time, just that simple act of like, it's the same thing that is the concept of the unions. The concept of the unions is not all that matters is building this power structure of people who dig coal it's all of these people realizing that their struggle is the same struggle and getting together and fight. Um, I try not to go for as hard of a moral at the end of it. I just like really, that story just really sticks with me. That's the story of the Battle of Blair Mountain. How are y'all feeling? That's a lot. It is. It is. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And that's, you know, when, when like, Ever since we launched the podcast, people have, you know, have said to us, we want you to cover Mate One. You know, we want you to do a story about Mate One. We want you to do Blair Mountain. And, you know, we're like, you know, when we launched this season, we're like, we're going to cover the mine. We're going to talk about mine wars. But we can't do that. Like, these are, re these are real people's lives. We're not going to try to, you know, take those stories and just spook them up. Mm -hmm. That's not, you know... That's that would be disrespectful. A Blair Mountain happened because of the mountain is possessed or something. Yeah, no like no, like yeah, like no. It's, it's like yeah, there's there's yeah. Now you are already do better work, and I'm not trying to spoil anything for us, anyone who's listening to this who hasn't yet started listening to your show. You already do work with what it means to be digging into the earth, you know, and you're doing it at a better level than just being like 
a witch told the miners to shoot and that's why they started fighting against their bosses or whatever. <laughs> yeah, now we can't. Can I be a writer on your a show? Ouija board yeah. <laughs> and the Ouija board said that you should, that you should shoot. <laughs> We, like can, we can we can talk about that, Margaret. We we, we can you know, absolutely you, you talk qualify. about that. You qualify. You are Appalachian. Yeah, yeah. And are, we can absolutely uh, talk about we, that. We actually, actually we actually have we we kind of have policies. Uh, we we have written the show. We have one guest writer who is an outsider, but they are um, writing from the perspective of an outsider. Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah. get caught up, and get if you want to holler, holler. All right, all right. yeah, yeah. Get get caught yeah, up on the absolutely. show and holler. I'll be more absolutely would be we could oh, talk that's about exciting. that we'll, we'll talk about it after awesome. the show um <laughs> yeah yeah let's do that yeah yeah but it's gonna be about a ouija board <laughs> it's not about a ouija board <laughs> and the ouija board says organized, <laughs> yeah, right. organized it's the ghost of mother jones it's creeping creeping about that creeping. musical collaboration idea either i'm just gonna throw that out oh yeah we're definitely gonna do that yes uh yeah yeah well, we are going to do a we are going to do a season about the satanic panic yes. in uh, in, oh, in Appalachia. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so. That's, that's, I don't win that is. We're probably going to hit you up. <laughs> okay, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and where can absolutely. people hit you all up if they want to know more about your show? They can go on over to oldgodsofappalachia.com. dot uh, com. You can find us on yeah on uh, actually oldgodsofappalachia.com is the best. All our social media, yeah. the Discord server, all that kind of stuff is there, and we're available wherever your fine podcast sundry goods are found. Awesome. Margaret, do you have anything you want to plug here? You mean like my upcoming book of short stories, We Won't Be Here Tomorrow? I, I have an upcoming oh, yeah. book of short stories called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow. It mm. comes out from AK Press on September 20th, 2022. That's the right Sweet. year. That's this year. And people can pre-order it sometime in June, which is probably around when you're listening. To, well, actually, I don't know. You could be listening to this 15 years from now if there's still a world. That'd be pretty cool. We don't know. Yeah. Mm. And uh, Sophie, where can people find you? Oh, gosh, nowhere. But they can follow at Cool Zone Media on Twitter oh, okay. and Instagram. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just wanted to shout out our editor, Ian Johnson. Yeah. Thank you for all your hard work. Thank you, Ian. It takes a bunch of people to do these things. And that gets forgotten. Yeah. But not by the people who do the things. And not by you, listeners, because now you know that Ian Johnson rules. He certainly does. And we'll be back next week with another tale of a cool people who did cool stuff. Yay. Bye, everyone. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. 
What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know, he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.